those of us in the industry who are still foolishly clinging to the idea that, uh, that female films with women at the centre are niche uh, experiences. They are not. Audiences want to see them, and in fact, they earn money. So... <laughs> Hello and welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that normally looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past, but not today. I am Brian. I'm Sean. How are you doing today, Sean? Oh, super as always, Brian. Super as always? As or, always. Or even, even more super? Oh, no, just as super. We, we are not going to look at any actresses from films of the 1990s. Oh, no. We're going to have a little look back at the performances in the films that are nominated for the Academy Awards this year. But um, when you say nominated for the Academy Awards, will we be looking at The Revenant? No. Will we be looking at The Big Short? Jesus Christ, I hope not. Uh, No. And why is that? Because we're only going to look at the two categories that really matter to us at all. There are only two categories in the Oscars, aren't there? Oh, what what are they called? That's Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress, aren't they? That is right. If you want to hear about Leonardo DiCaprio, if you want to hear about Sylvester Stallone, then you can listen to any of the dozens of podcasts that are talking about those. This, ladies and gentlemen, is going to only look at the seven leading actresses and three supporting actresses who have been nominated for Academy Awards this year. And if you don't know why those numbers are those are the way it is, we'll get to that. Yeah. We will also have appearances by some very special guests. At least I hope I will. I've put in lots of calls to publicists. We may have some actual Oscar winners and Oscar nominees on the line speaking to us. Sean doesn't really know about this yet. That's a teaser. No, Sean. I would venture to say that these two categories are the ones we've always liked the best. Yeah. I mean, what's your feelings on the Oscars, Brian? I know they're fake. I know they're a bunch of, frankly, bullshit a lot of the time. You know what? It reminds me of, it's a bit like me as a Madonna fan. (laughs) Yeah? As in, like, yeah, I like her. I, I enjoy her. I'm hugely critical of her as well. Right, exactly. If you love the Oscars, you don't love every decision that you that they make. And you certainly don't like their gender bias, you know? So often in past years, uh, the movies that are nominated for Best Picture have nothing to do with the um, the performances that are nominated by women. Yeah. I mean, look at last year. The Birdman, Boyhood. Birdman. Talk about male angst. And boyhood is the same. <laughs> just, just look at the name of it. I mean, I did like boyhood. Yeah. But those are those are male movies about the male experience. This year, as we'll see, we have had some more female-nominated movies. But have you ever done any, like, deep self-assessment, Sean, and thought to yourself, why is it that you, a cisgendered male... White. Seem, <laughs> white. Seem to like female performances so much. Well, as you know, I have a master's in critical theory. <laughs> I know you do. You didn't really care at all about Matthew McConaughey, Colin Firth. I mean, the, the, these are not the wins that excited you Jesus were they, Christ, in the no. past years. If you look at kind of gender binary theory in the most simplistic sense, m- man is the sun, women is the moon, uh, men are the, are the fertilizers, women are the earth, those kind of things. And if you look at the whole simple idea that gender is a performative construct. You could say that the real acting is from the men in the sense that they are keeping it all in, their maleness is constructed, everything about it is uh, artificial. When it comes to acting, the men get the action in 90% of the movies they're driving the plot. 
but the women, especially the great female roles, are doing something else, aren't they? It's not about action and acting and pursuing objectives all the time. Yeah, it's about emotion and response and, you know, the soul. And very often, like I think in our case especially, we relate to the female characters because they express an emotion that we can relate to. Absolutely. And as we'll see when we dive into these categories, we have a bounty of riches this year. Now, since this is 2016, and we're looking at the second year in a row that all of the acting nominees, however, have been from white actors, both male and female, we would be remiss if we didn't say something about the Oscars So White controversy and the overall diversity in the Academy. Yeah, and I think, you know, we are two cisgendered white men sitting here, but I think we can, you know, at least formulate some thoughtful ideas about what we mean, our stance on this. I'm personally completely in favor of um, the efforts that the Academy has swiftly announced to diversify their ranks. I am very sympathetic with people like Spike Lee and their comments. I mean, Spike Lee's movie Chirac made a lot of top 10 lists at the end of the year. We haven't seen it. I don't think it's even been released over here. No, it hasn't. Probably we could watch it on Amazon. Maybe we should add that to our list soon because it has our beloved Angela Bassett among, among many other people in it. But, you know, when you look at a movie like that, if that was directed by Martin Scorsese, there's no way that that would not be in the yeah, Oscar even com- conversation. If, even if it was all black actors as well. Yeah, absolutely. And even if it was considered uneven, it's from a major American director. Yeah. Um, who has recently just been honored by the Academy. Completely. I mean, that's the irony. I really wish that they were giving him his honorary award live on the telecast because he he would have had a lot to say. And when we just look at the acting categories, we're ignoring the whole other big problems with diversity in the Academy Awards. Outside of the acting categories, how many people of color get nominated? Far, far, far fewer. I mean, where are the black production designers, you know? Where are the Hispanic costume designers? Yeah, or, or directors, yeah. you know? I mean, of course. we're talking about a handful even of, of women who yeah. have ever been nominated in director. So the one thing I will say about the fact that we're focusing on these women and we're focusing on the nominated women, so we will be talking about white women, is that when this year in particular, when you talk about who got overlooked from um, actors of color, people talking about Michael B. Jordan, people are talking about Idris Elba. It is very hard to start to list the women of color who even got roles in movies this year um, that would have been part of the Oscar conversation. And that's a huge amount of bias that I think goes to casting directors and the kind of projects that gets picked. So, Well, you know the way I see it, okay? I see it kind of as like a triangle or the tip of the iceberg, okay? The Oscars are a big fanfare event. It's sticking out of the water. Everybody pays attention to films. Maybe they haven't thought about movies too much, but the general public is exposed to them a bit more. And then they see all these white actors and they see all these white films, okay? And everyone's naturally outraged, of course. And they should be. However, I think it's a jejun attitude to take to say that the Oscars are to blame for everything. They are the tip of the iceberg. You have to go all the way down to the bottom and say, where are the films with people of colour in the roles? Where are the films being made by people of colour which are getting the distribution yeah. and the marketing you know, and the audiences? I think all these things need to be taken into account. I think Steve McQueen, the director, has said that this is we should look at this as a watershed moment. This is the year in which everybody makes the collective effort. You know? Yeah, and hopefully this will no longer be acceptable. And the people understand that a prestige picture and a picture that has um, the experiences of non-white people at its heart, that those things are not mutually exclusive. We hope that we come back next year and we're talking about amazing performances, 
not just from the Viola Davises, no. but also the Tiana Paris, you yeah. know, the woman who started in Chirac, and, and other amazing, extraordinary actors the of Adriana all kinds of... The Adriana Barazzas, you know? <laughs> yes, indeed, the Rinko Kikuchis. Yeah. Can I say one thing before we continue? Yeah, yeah. We should, we should look at the small victories. There are two Best Picture films that have two leading actress nominees, and we should be very happy about that. Yeah, it, I, it's been a great year for, for women in movies. I just wish it were a better year for, for all non, women. non-white women. Yeah. It's been an amazing year for Irish film as well, hasn't it? Yeah, I, yeah it has to be said. I'm, I'm exceptionally happy this year that two Irish-funded, Irish-made films are in the best picture category. My, my token on, on this uh, moment is that I just hope that it spurs more money to go into Irish filmmaking from the Irish Film Board. We get more talented filmmakers who are looking at the world from not an imperialist perspective. Just saying. Just saying. <laughs> never colonised anybody. Aaron right? Gobra. Aaron Gobra. Aaron Gobra. Okay. <laughs> um, not Chucky Arla. Aaron Gabra, okay? <laughs> not Aaron Brockovich either. Um, we've got some really exciting interviews coming out. Sean, is, now is not the time to go to the bathroom, Sean. Uh, Brian, you know, I've, I've, I, I ate some dodgy, I, uh, okay. some dodgy all right, muffins. All right, we'll see you later. Well, while Sean's out of the room, um, I don't know how I'm going to kill... Oh, we've got a Skype call coming in. Hold on. Hello? Uh, hello. Uh, who's this? Sorry, I was told to call this number. Uh, yeah, this is the Broad Appeal podcast. Yeah, my name's Saoirse Ronan. Oh my gosh, Saoirse Ronan, Oscar nominee for Best Actress for Brooklyn. I'm Brian. It's so exciting to have you on the podcast. Yeah, how's it going, Brian? Good to talk to you. Saoirse, uh, thank you so much for calling. I'm sure you must be so busy now that you're a nominee. Yeah, because I, I mean the, the ceremony is in a couple of weeks, so I just actually booked a nail appointment with the you know, a nice Vietnamese place in the Crumlin Shopping Centre. Well, I'm sure they're going to look beautiful. Sersha, I-, I know you've been a nominee before, but now you're nominated in the leading category. You must be so famous all over Ireland, especially. Has this has this changed your life? You know, it's funny you say that because I always try and live like a normal life as possible. So I still find, you know, once a week, I like to meet up with my friends in Clondalkin and we play rounders on the green in Clondalkin, you know, like we always did. What's rounders? Is that like baseball or something? Yeah, I suppose you could say it's like baseball, but all you need is, is uh, you know, two tennis rackets and uh, about four jumpers. Oh, and you, you're still playing with the same old friends from the old neighborhood? Ah, yeah, you know, um, my friends like, uh, like Pauline Fitzmaurice and... Um, like uh, Jackie Earl Haley and, <laughs> and, uh, and Fiona Fiona Cronin and, uh, and uh, you know my good friend Bridget Fonda as well. Like we're all, all we're always playing together. Well, that's great, Sersha. And um, you must be you know uh, since your first Oscar nomination was as a as a child. Now you're you're a grown woman. Or do you find yourself getting offered like much more adult parts? Well, you know, the last time I was at the Oscars, I was like a zygote. But now I'm 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 over twenty one, so I can get I can get like you know ossified at the after party, the Vanity Fair after party, or Elton John. Sure, he always has one as well. That's usually grand. Um, but in terms of the roles, you know, in Brooklyn when Emery. Cohen and I were doing that, uh, you know, that scene, you know, the one. The love scene. Yeah, the love scene. Well, we were on my iPhone before we started. We were on YouTube and 
uh, we were looking at clips from Don't Look Now with uh, Donald Sutherland and uh, Julie Christie, and I was like, Emery, do you want to do you want to try it the way they're doing it? You know, you know what they say about it, like for real. Do you wanna... Are you serious, Sersha? Ah, uh, no, I'm only pulling your leg. Jesus Christ. <sighs> You are such a card. Well, sir, Sean is going to be so upset that he missed you. You know Sean, right? My co-host. Oh, yeah. He's that fella from Longford, isn't he? It doesn't sound like he's from Longford. A big, a posh old voice on him. You think his accent is, has uh, gone all expatriate? Is that what you're saying? Well, let me just say, I've, I've, you know, I've not met that many people from Longford, so I try my best not to, but um, they don't sound like that, that's for sure. I mean, I've got a typically authentic Dublin accent, you know. Carlo, you could say, really, Carlo. Well, Sersha, we'll let you get to your nail appointment. Good luck on the 28th. You know what, Brian? It's an absolute pleasure talking to you, and um, I'll see you on the night. Yeah, you're coming, aren't you? Uh, we might be seat fillers. Okay. Oh, thanks for calling me. <laughs> Bye-bye. Oh, okay, all right. I'm feeling much better. So, um, should, we, should we continue? Sean, you missed Sersha. Sersha called in. Sersha. 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 Sorry, Sersha. Jesus Christ, if she was here, she'd tell you that herself. Well, she, she was just here. You missed her. <laughs> Uh, I'll see her in the Crumlin Shopping Centre at some point. <sighs> fine, fine. So we are going to first look at the uh, women who, for the most part, have smaller parts, except in two instances, have very big parts. Yeah. And those are the three supporting actresses and two leading actresses who've been nominated in the category of Best Supporting Actress. So for the first time, the first nomination, Jennifer Jason Lee for The Hateful Eight. A veteran actress, Kate Winslet, for her weird performance in uh, the pointless film Steve Jobs. Yeah. She's also a previous winner for okay. The Raider. Um, Rachel McAdams in Spotlight. Uh, first nomination. Yep. Alicia Vikander, first nomination for The Danish Girl. And Rooney Mara for her second nomination, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It, but the first time in this category for Carol. Yes. And those last two we're going to handle separately because eh, 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 there's a category fraud alert. So who should we handle first? Maybe Jennifer Jason Lee? Yeah, JJL. Probably neither you nor I would have gone to see The Hateful Eight if it hadn't been for her nomination. Yeah, how do you feel about Tarantino films in general? My favourite Tarantino films, perhaps not surprisingly, what? Jackie Brown. It has a female lead. It's the quietest. It's the most character driven. He loves, he consumes film. He's been doing it for his entire life. His films are really kind of labours of love, of, of homages and references that he wants to honour, which is usually better in theory than it is in practice. Well, despite being, you know, kind of a geeky boy nerd type, he has done pretty well by actresses in the past. He's he's gotten Uma a nomination. He's gotten Pam Greer a nomination. He's he's written good roles for women. But this Jennifer Jason Lee role in The Hateful Eight, I mean, I am glad that we can now say Oscar nominee Jennifer Jason Lee. We talked about her just the other week when we did Dolores Claiborne. It's amazing she's had such a long career and this is her first nomination. Who do, who does she play in this movie? Daisy uh, Domergue. Domergue. Yeah. yeah. She's a she's a murderer uh, who is on her way to being executed. Yeah, and I would say like this performance is bonkers. Often in Best Supporting Actor, in the male side of things, these kind of crazy sadistic villains frequently get nominations. You know, Christoph Waltz or John Malkovich in In the Line of Fire, these kind of psycho roles. It's rare to see a woman who is just this psychotic and bloodthirsty. So I guess in that sense, it's it's, it's exciting. But she, she is literally like feral in this film. She's spitting, she's bleeding, she's cussing, she's got snot running out of her nose. Yeah. She's literally like caked in blood yeah. through most of the movie that's been inflicted from Kurt Russell like banging her 
Some of that is just hard to watch. I know. You know, she also gets to sing in the film. I enjoyed that. Did you yeah, like that? I like that. Although she's doing it to sort of distract, isn't yeah. she, while the other ones are drinking the poison. So even though it sounds quite lovely, she's yeah. got this sort of devilish yeah. plan at heart. I don't want to say it's a one-note performance. I just think it's a one-note character. She plays this villainous psycho killer. But we don't really find out what she did or, you know, why she was so sadistic or brutal. We just, we're told she's this, she is this, we accept it. In, in this Tarantino film, it's like, how, how much acting can you do under two inches of caked on blood? The narrative structure of the film is so weird because you kind of think, oh, this is a reconstruction story and we're going to be driven by this kind of racial revenge plot with Samuel L. Jackson's character. And then through the whole last section, it becomes about like, brutally killing Jennifer Jason Lee. But Jennifer Jason Lee, you're right, we never learn who she's murdered or why we should hate her so much. And they keep just calling her a bitch and a bitch this. And then the last shot is her, sorry, spoilers guys, dangling from a noose. Yeah, but that's Tarantino's weird, you know, fanboy video game love of gore, you know? But he usually doesn't do that. I mean, usually uh, the women have at least some... Have you seen Kill Bill? A lot of women get brutally... No, I know, but, but then that's at least balanced by having like our heroine be the yeah. person who's like this is the only woman in the no I guess there are a few of those other women who also get blown Brutally away blown away I also don't know what clip they're gonna play at the, sh at the I was thinking of watching the film I was like what scene are they going to show that doesn't have her one bleeding punched swearing being swear sworn at maybe the singing yeah I mean yeah well, from that, we can move on to Kate Winslet. This is one of those performances where there is an Aaron Sorkin written speech for Kate Winslet's character in Steve Jobs that strikes me as like screaming Oscar monologue. Which right? one is that again? The one in the third section of the movie where she says, fix it, Steve, fix it. Yeah. What should I say about this? Ah, who is Kate Winslet in Steve Jobs? She is... I, she's not a character. This thankless person who seems to be clearing up after Steve Jobs for everything, popping up to save the day, to help him, to have some thankless task. I mean, we don't learn much about her. It's just not using Kate Winslet's skills as an actress to any proper effect. I want to point out, as a teacher of English, I've had no problem with the Polish accent whatsoever. In my opinion, the Polish accent is spot yeah, on. Yeah, she's an Americanized Polish person. Yeah, yeah. It's like, that's what happens when you're exposed in an, in an environment where, you know, you're not the first language speaker. I, I love the accent. was amazing. I, this is one of the ones where I think I have to disagree with you, Sean. Okay, why? When we walked out of Steve Jobs, all I cared about, all I could think about was Kate Winslet's performance. Now, I grant you that this character makes no sense. As far as I know, the character she's playing, Joanna Hoffman, is some kind of high-up VP in she's Apple. She's a real person. She's a real person. She's some kind of high-up VP in Apple, like head of marketing or something. The way that Aaron Sorkin seems to depict her is like she's a glorified personal assistant. Yeah. I mean, she basically keeps coming in to tell Steve people are there to see him, including his daughter. She takes care of the daughter. Yeah, she takes care she? of the daughter. Basically, this is Kate Winslet as Thelma Ritter, right? Yeah. The quintessential Best Supporting Actress, Thelma Ritter, nominated so many times, always playing like... She still has the highest amount of supporting nominations. There you go. Wisecracking sidekick, nurse, you know, dresser to Betty Davis in All About Eve. And Kay Winslet gives it everything. She gives this woman an accent, incredible glasses, like personality. I love the hairstyle, everything. 
And she just makes this kind of efficient, fun character into, in my, in my opinion, the highlight of the movie. And I was so glad to see Kate Winslet doing something interesting. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Literally, Sean. She takes this role, which anyone might have just played in a boring way. She gives this kind of flat and funny Eastern European humor to it. This kind Slavic of... Slavic like, efficiency. Yeah, <laughs> Slavic efficiency and these kind of flat, wry jokes with that odd accent. I mean... You have I, to admit, I didn't grow up in the shtetls. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is the, you did not expect this performance ever from Kate Winslet. Can I? Can it? Can we be fair to say that? No, I, you expected this. This role was not challenging. So why would I not expect her to be in, like to be able to do that? It's... She was the heart of Steve Jobs. It had this heartless character at the center, and she was at least trying to give him a conscience. All right, the next person we're going to talk about is the person you might think is most deserving of this nomination. And uh, don't give it away. I think this is a truly supporting performance in an exceptional film with a quality of acting that is not hammy, overwrought, or underlined, which is Rachel McAdams in Spotlight. Talk about play, who does she play and why did you like it so much? Okay, she plays uh, Boston Globe reporter Sasha Pfeiffer. As Brian has pointed out to me, it's the kind of performance that stands out because it's a film full of men. Yes, that is true. When you're the only woman in a film, you tend to get more, at least, attention because you're, you're the only woman, basically. Honestly, I love Spotlight because it's it's in the, in the same vein as all the president's men. There's nothing bombastic about it, but it is as thrilling and gripping as any action film that I have seen. Rachel McAdams' performance there's no close-ups or there's no uh, bit where she gets emotional or no bit where she gets like angry. There's nothing, there's nothing like, how would you say? So what is there? I, I'm with you. I, I thought she was great, but you're saying there's no there's this, there's no that. Deep so what is there? Relatability, uh, deep appreciation, real empathy for this character, belief and support. She is the character who who actually has the most interview scenes with people who do get emotional. Mm. One of the performances that I loved was a small part from Michael... Uh, Michael Cyril Creighton. Michael Cyril Creighton, who you, you, you know, don't you? Michael Cyril Creighton, who I have directed in a play, Dear Friend. If you're listening, Michael, phenomenal work. Yeah, Michael, I don't know you, you don't know me, but nonetheless, I thought you were great. And because those two were so good together, he was a character who was, a, you know, a victim of child uh, child sexual abuse, who was kind of reflecting back his pain and anguish to this character, who was both deeply sympathetic, but never condescending or patronizing. And she did it so brilliantly. She supported all the other characters. I loved her. I've never really, I've, I mean, apart from Mean Girls, you know, I've never really, I mean, I'm not that I never cared for her, but she's never been on my radar so much. Mm. There's so many other things that she does really nicely in this movie. If you pay attention to Spotlight, you'll see that the different reporters take different tactics. Mark Ruffalo is the most sort of passionate and aggressive. But what Rachel McAdams does, so much of her work in the investigation that's going on is to relate to the victims. She's keeping it together. There's no big emotional scene. Think <laughs> yeah, you're talking about the dishwasher. The dishwasher no, is about as emotional. Yeah, as the dishwasher is about as emotional. <laughs> she, she, that, that, that's you know rage, rage <laughs> against the machine. The scenes and the subtle dynamic between her and her nana, her grandmother, yeah. who's a devout Catholic, that is very subtly woven through. That she's not a believer herself, but her sense of how this investigation is going to destroy her yeah. mother, her grandmother's faith, and how much she values her faith. Yeah. What about what about that scene? where she and Mark Ruffalo are having a beer on the porch near the end of the investigation where it really has taken a toll on them more than they say. And I think she says, like, it's just a really shitty thing. The truth of what these priests done is so shitty. And so I think a very deserving Oscar nomination. Yeah. 
High five. Thanks. Yes. You know what? I probably am rooting for Rachel, and here's why. Because the other two performances, one of them in particular, I think is great. However, either of these remaining performances win. We will all be accessories to fraud. <laughs> These two performances from Alicia Vikander and Rooney Mara are not supporting performances. I mean, Rooney Mara in Carol is essentially the protagonist. I'm just so disappointed at these people who are voting. Do they go and see the films or are they just told what to do? Well, Honestly. They... <laughs> okay, the, pause for a minute. So we're talking about this like a terrible crime, you know. Yeah, but it's that, annoying. That calling someone supporting when they're really a lead is, is a horrible thing. But why, why is this a, such a significant thing that's bad? Okay, two words. Joan Allen. Amen. Sarah Paulson. Exactly. Four words. Joan Allen, Sarah Paulson. Need we say Angela more? Bassett. Six words. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but let's focus on the first two. Okay. These are, what I'm saying is like, <laughs> by lead, nominating lead performances in a supporting category blocks out people who are actually giving supporting yeah. roles. And I thought that Joan Allen in Room oh, and Sarah yeah. Paulson in Carol were two terrifically brilliant character roles by two great supporting actresses yeah. who should be in this category. Okay, okay. Here's a Valium. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite depressing to see sort of glamorous lead movie stars taking these supporting nominations. And you know whose fault it is? Judy fucking Garland. Are we really going back to no, Judgment no, at Nuremberg? Can you just can you just say identify to the listeners what I'm okay. talking about? Judy Garland, of course, was notoriously robbed for one of the great screen performances ever in A Star Is Born by Grace Kelly. But she had one chance to maybe towards the end of her career get an Oscar, and she was nominated in the supporting category for Judgment at Nuremberg. Now, to be fair to Judy, that was a cameo role in an ensemble picture. I know, but it was the first example of of putting lead actors in supporting roles. Well, I guess because the 60s, as you know from Mark Harris's book, Pictures of We love you, Mark. Mark, if you're listening, brilliant. Well, I know you're not, but... <laughs> the 60s were a time of change in Hollywood, right? When the supporting categories were created, there was a very clear dividing line between lead performances, stars, and then contract players. Like, can you imagine Joan Crawford ever being nominated for Best Supporting Actress? Jesus Christ, can she? No. <laughs> no, she wouldn't have stood for it. She'd go She'd go into Louis B. Mayer's office and she'd whip him with a wire hanger. And you start having this phenomenon of major stars thinking, well, I can win an Oscar if I take a supporting role. And occasionally they do, you know? Like, Kate Blanchett in The Aviator, legitimate supporting role. Yeah? Rooney Mara and Alicia Vikander in this situation, not. Nada. So let's just quickly deal with Alicia Vikander because I have a feeling that this is the performance on this list that we're really not enthused about. Can I just talk about the ludicrousness of this nomination? Okay, last year, Eddie Redmayne and what's-her-face? Felicity Jones. Felicity Jones were the leads of that film and the husband, wife, both nominated Best Actor, Actress. Yeah. Okay? Alicia Vikander on the poster for this film. She is the wife of the character, the lead character. Arguably, she's the title yeah, character. Yeah, she's the Danish it's girl. It's sort of ambiguity. Why is she supporting? But I think we'd like this performance better if we liked the film a bit more. Yeah. You know what? I, I'll, I'll put it out there. It's a queer film made by straight people for straight people. And and sadly, one that sort of so ennobles. Boring as fuck. <laughs> and it so ennobles this sort of tragic vision of what it's like for Eddie Redmayne's character to be trans, that it just sucks all the air and all yeah. the juice and all the sexiness out of him. Yeah. I, I will say, so Alicia Vikander, if you haven't seen The Danish Girl, well, she's the wife of someone who 
is questioning their gender identity and over the course of their marriage transition surgically from uh, from male to female. Am I am I expressing that properly? Yeah. Okay. You could say you could say their gender is, is affirmed. Great. There you go. Yeah. And it's a really interesting part in theory, right? Because actually, instead of doing the normal kind of freaking out, this character is actually very supportive. She's kind of this 1920s Danish bohemian yeah. painter. And she actually sort of encourages her spouse's cross-dressing at times and yeah. then ultimately really goes along with it. And apparently this is very historically accurate. The bits of the movie that I really wish there had been more of were this eroticism. Oh, yeah. Which just kind of peeks out. When Eddie Redmayne reveals that his character is wearing like a slip or something. Yeah, yeah. That, under the male clothing. Yeah. And they both get off on it. Yeah. They, and I liked that. Yeah, that was, a, that was a kind of sexy scene where I thought, ooh. And also, can we just point out that the actual real-life Felicia Vikander character ended up writing lesbian erotic fiction yeah, the so, rest of her life. So apparently, this real character, Gerda, in real life, sort of discovered her own lesbianism, or at least her kind of bisexuality, whereas the movie version ends up with hunky Matthias Schoenertz, which... You know, granted, I, I I would accept that too, but I mean, it's so much less interesting. Yeah, so much less interesting. So, Alicia, if you're listening, it's not you, it's the film. Yeah. And Alicia, I know you've had a great year. We have to confess, we haven't seen you as an interesting robot in Ex Machina. We promise we will watch that because I have a feeling we might like that better. And last but not least, Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara. Can I take this yeah, one? Yeah, of course, go okay. ahead. Rooney Mara, to me, is an actress that I've always been a bit lukewarm on. Or not lukewarm, but just kind of agnostic. Well, she's not been around for that long. Maybe something to do with her public image. I've always found her maybe a little bit entitled or impenetrable or something. You know, Sean, I am a Carol partisan. It was one of those films that, upon seeing it, I knew instantaneously this was a movie that would imprint itself on my memory. And I think the more you think about Carol, I think it is her performance as Therese, a young woman who is embarking on her first lesbian affair, that really drives the whole picture. Kate Blanchett has this showy, glamorous role, but it's Therese, is her quiet blossoming, her yeah, sort of coming, her coming of age as yeah. well. Very subtlety with very few lines. She's a very taciturn character. She's mostly looking. She's a photographer. She's a budding photographer. She's always observing. She's quiet. And Kate Blanchett's character, Carol, says about Therese, it's like you've been flung out of space. She has this kind of alien, otherworldly quality. And over the course of the film, you know, Sandy Powell's costuming helps this. She goes from being this person who doesn't quite know what she is. I mean, I don't even know what to order for lunch. And then she she discovers this amazing adult woman over the course of the movie. I see Carol to be a piece of exquisite filmmaking. And I still think it was just a bit chilly and a bit studied. And Todd Haynes, I love you. But these are my own personal reservations with Carol. You just talked about the lack of queerness in The Danish Girl. Carol is a truly queer film. That it is. And it's queer because it's not exactly a conventional love story. It's a strange yeah. story of obsession to use, to over the love object. It's kind yeah, of and it's more like, form. in its semiotic form. Yeah. It's a queer film. Yeah. It's it's queering discourse. It's queering narrative. And we begin from Therese's standpoint, and then we kind of subtly shift into Carol without even noticing. Really. Which is which is basically why it's so clear that these two people are co-leads because the film sort of pivots on this turn from Therese to Carol. 
it's a film about being able to see into another person and not see into another person. The opacity of someone that you love, you wish that you could merge with them almost, that you could you could consume them, see into them, and you can't entirely. I, I will continue watching Carol Forever and I will continue loving Rooney Mara's performance as Therese. That scene in the car after they've been confronted by the private eye, that to me is a really emotional bit of Carol where Therese says, I just kept saying yes, yes, and going along with everything. And you realize how guilty she feels for her role in what seems like the destruction of Carol's marriage. And I don't know, it's a masterpiece and she's great. Should she win the Best Supporting Actress Oscar? In my mind, she gives the best performance of these five women, but we have to stand up against category fraud, don't we, Sean? We, we cannot let it get any more entrenched than it already is. I want Rachel McAdams to win. I will second that one. And you know what? We're not going to speculate about who is going to win. We just want to no. put out what we think should win. But, ladies, congratulations. Congratulations. <sighs> Sean, you're looking a bit sweaty. Yeah, I gotta go. I gotta go. Uh... Well, you're going to take a nap now. No, I gotta go give, uh, mop my flop sweats off. Yeah, back <sighs> in a minute. Oh, I'm sorry, he doesn't usually do this. Oh, wait, who's this calling us? Uh, hello? Yes, hello. Uh, is this two-time Academy Award winner Glenda Jackson? This is former Labour MP Glenda Jackson. Oh my goodness, Miss Jackson. Uh, what a surprise. I had no idea you were going to call us. We are such big fans of your work. Well, thank you very much. Uh, of course, you know, I don't know if you know our podcast, but we, we focus on films of the 90s, so we've not been able to look at any of your films because, of course, during that whole time you were yes, not I working. Yes, I was dedicating myself to my constituents of Hampstead and Highgate. Kilburn, uh, uh, both, both. I see. I, I wonder, during all those years where you were devoting yourself tirelessly to your constituents, were there any films that came out during that time that you wish you had been a part of? During the 1990s, I regretfully had to pass over a, a leading role in the film uh, Music of the Heart. Uh, was that a, a film that you felt you could have done well? Well, yes, you know, I was inspired by the content of the film because in the wake of the Thatcher years in Britain, in my constituency, music, art, creative subjects were sidelined for Tory business schemes. The instruments in our classrooms, they were held together by offcuts of wallpaper and rolls and rolls of the ubiquitous sellotape. Oh my goodness. The well, classrooms in my constituency became reminiscent of scenes that Hogarth would have recognised. And indeed, he would. Well, uh, Miss Jackson, I know you were tireless as a critic of uh, Thatcherism. I wonder, uh, what did you think of The Iron Lady, the biopic that uh, was really starring Meryl Streep? Yes, I watched an uh, Academy Award screener of the film under great duress, I might add. And I found uh, Miss Streep's portrayal to be perfectly adequate. Now, I don't particularly know the woman. I'm, I've only met her a, a handful of times. And I found Miss Streep 
to be a perfectly reasonable woman. In fact, I've always quite uh, admired her tireless work against the plight of pesticides on our children and our grandchildren's vegetables. But uh, her acting skills? Mrs. Thatcher was a very divisive figure. I felt she did a reasonable job, but a Best Actress Academy Award and an actress, not on my terms. Well, uh, Miss, Miss Jackson, it is wonderful to have you back again in the public eye. We won't hold you any longer. I'm sure you must be very busy. Well, as you know, I, I have many things to repair in my home because the provisions for pension-aged people has been mercilessly savaged by this Tory government. So I am waiting to have my drains cleaned by a local man in Blackheath. Well, I, I fear for his sanity. Uh, sorry, Miss Jackson, an honour. I, I hope we have you again on the podcast another time. My pleasure. Goodbye. Sean, Sean, come back in here. What are you doing? Here I am. Sorry, babe, I was just having a very important DM sesh with Jeremy Corbyn. What, on Twitter? Yeah, of course. With Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party. Yeah. Well, I was having an actual Skype conversation with Glenda Jackson. Oh, yeah? How'd that go? It was, it, it was imperious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, uh, well, I'm sure I'll see her, you know, in the Highgate Cemetery as I lay a wreath to Marx himself. Okay, can we get to the category that we've been waiting for? Best Actress in a Leading Role. The nominees are... Jennifer Lawrence in Joy. Charlotte Rampling in 45 Years, Kate Blanchett in Carol, Brie Larson, Room, and Saoirse Ronan, Brooklyn. Wow. This is quite a fine list of nominees, don't you think? Ish. Oh. Throwing a bit of shade? Yeah. It's a a shade that's cast on... (laughs) Fifty Shades of... Fifty Shades of Lawrence. (laughs) Ooh. Forty-five Shades of Grey as well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, so maybe we should take those two nominations first, uh, starting with Jennifer Lawrence. This is her fourth Oscar nomination, three of which have been for films directed yeah. by David O. Russell. And you know what? She's still younger than me. Okay, not bitter. <laughs> I, I suspect fine. she'll always be younger than you, oh, babe. Yeah? yeah. Oh, yeah? <laughs> we'll see how that plays out. Do you consider yourself to be the Jennifer Lawrence of podcasting? Yeah, I get undue recognition for moderate skills. <laughs> I probably am the bigger Jennifer Lawrence critic of the two of us. I said after we went to see Joy that Jennifer Lawrence is a bit like the housing bubble. She's just kind of like built up well beyond any actual merit, which she has some merit, but the hype that constantly surrounds her is something I find hard to fathom. Yeah, Yeah. I like her. I love Silver Lining's playbook. I think she's very likable. She just has to start playing characters not necessarily her own age, but characters that are believable at any age for her to play. Uh, you know, there's all these things on the internet. You know, Jennifer Lawrence should play the character she's the age she is. You know what? I don't necessarily agree with that attitude. You know, I'm a big fan of uh, suspension of disbelief. I think Jennifer Lawrence is a great actress. I just think that she is not able to convey, at the moment, a character above the age of 25. She's not a transformative actress. I mean... You know, Linda Hunt won for playing a man, for yeah. goodness sake. You know, there are actresses who can believably sink into people who are very different from themselves. Marion Cotillard as um, Edith Piaf, you know, when people saw her underneath that makeup, they were like, my God, she's a, she's a pretty young woman. 
Jennifer Lawrence is not that kind of actress. For those who haven't seen Joy, who is she? It's about the woman who created the Miracle Moth, but it's not really. It's a composite of many things, and it's inspired heavily by Joy Mangano. I think that's her name, yeah. Yeah. Um, So she is a New Jersey mother and wife, uh, very put upon in her family, and seems to be the, the one who keeps everything together ironically called joy and seems to live a pretty joyless life yeah and she you know from a young age she's got this ingenious ability uh for making things but everyone else in her family seems to kind of not pay attention to until she kind of fights to get this mop made to get it sold on qvc and she eventually becomes a kind of mogul of homewares yeah. <laughs> i mean it's a really interesting story in theory this is interesting because it's uh, the first david russell film in his recent streak of successful big hits that is really only getting one look in. You know, uh, Silver Linings Playbook got a lot of big nominations. So as did The did Fighter. And, and American Hustle. Yeah. And um, this film is noticeably uneven. So were you surprised that she got a nomination? My theory about Jennifer Lawrence is that she's very convincing. Like she says, She says the lines very brilliantly, you know? Can I say, I I was really troubled when she was interviewed by Terry Gross on Fresh Air and Terry lobbed her this question where she said, did you study how to use the miracle mop and practice mopping with the mop? And Jennifer Lawrence was like, no, I never really even thought of doing that. And I was like, you're playing the woman who invented a mop and you didn't like practice using the mop. I don't know. Is that petty of me to say? Like... I well, like Jennifer because Lawrence. you would have used the mop. Well, so would Meryl Streep have <laughs> used the mop. Like, I I like Jennifer So would Julia fucking Roberts. <laughs> I know. Well, Julia Roberts is an apt comparison. Julia Roberts is not a transformative great actress. Is she great in Erin Brockovich, her Oscar-winning role? Yes. yes. She knows how to kind of harness her star persona to the right kinds of roles. I don't know. There's something about Joy. I didn't buy that she was a woman who ever really used a mop. I didn't buy that she was a woman who had small children or really felt... There was one kid that never gets a look in. She didn't seem like someone who felt the pressure of like being a working person. She yeah, well, felt sort of like a glamorous millennial who was kind of play-acting at being a suburban woman. Yeah, but you know, I would blame more so the inconsistency of the direction and script than I would, say, blame her for Well, that. except, Sean, compare her to the woman who played her stepsister, Elizabeth Rome, who was also in um, American Hustle. Imagine, like, her as Joy. Yeah, I would have preferred that. Now, imagine Mira Sorvino as Joy. Yeah, now that granted, much better. Well, I agree with you, but granted, the film would not be doing Buffo box office. And I think David O. Russell has made a deal where he keeps putting Jennifer Lawrence in these movies and they, they make good money. But I don't know. I want to see her challenge herself more. Okay, moving on. Charlotte Rampling has had a long, illustrious career. Um, this is her first ever Oscar nomination. She's performed in English and in French. She's been in all kinds of artsy films. 45 years, who does she play? She plays Kate Mercer, wife of Jeffrey Mercer. They're both retired. Jeffrey seems to have worked in some unspecified factory environment. Uh, Kate has worked in school. She's a teacher or headmistress or something. They're about to celebrate their 45th wedding anniversary. And um, Jeffrey receives letters saying that they've found the thawed out body of his then girlfriend from over 45 years ago. Uh, and he seems to be quite distraught about it. And Kate finds out all this various information about it. It's a slow film. There's a lot of walking around the garden, stubbing out cigarettes, looking moody. Um, Britishness. <laughs> 
these sort of finely observed domestic dramas with older British people is not your normal cup of tea, so to speak. It is mine, though. I tend to love these kind of movies. And there's something about 45 years that just left, I think, both of us cold. I watched it a second time with you to kind of see if I was missing what everyone's so excited about. And I, I still couldn't get that enthused about 45 years. It's all premise and no execution. Basically, the premise being that this news from the past. It's shaking a marriage of 45 years. Yeah, but I think the thing is you, you sort of get that, like, literally from the first scene. You know, after she's gone walking on the moors she, with the dog... She comes in and he's reading the letter and then we live through an entire week of their life. It kind of goes exactly as I would have expected. I, they're both giving great performances and it's nice to see an older married couple depicted on film. Did this seem like the kind of thing that you thought Oscar was going to reward with a nomination? Yeah, but I don't, I don't begrudge it the nomination, you know, or her. You think she's good in this? Yeah, I think she's good. I think she's fine. I, am, I like her. She has a different sensibility than the other actresses who are nominated. It's icy. It's glacial. It's, yeah. uh, but at the same time, it has a British uh, quality to it in which it's all about what's happening underneath the surface, about what's not said, about what you can convey in a glance or a gaze, those kind of things. She's great. She's a glamour woman. Yeah, she's gorgeous. She's beautiful. I also like she's got a bit of a lazy eye because I've got a little bit of a lazy eye as well. <laughs> you know, she's very commanding. It's interesting she's a teacher. She's kind of bossy. She seems to boss around her husband. And yet she cannot, she will never be able to, to go back in time and meet him before this woman that he's known before. So there's a lot of emotion in this film and maybe older Academy voters who've now been stricken from the roles by uh, Cheryl Boone Isaacs are the ones who got Charlotte Rampling onto this list. She's certainly shown where her allegiances are in this diversity debate, hasn't she? Yeah, but I think that's just... A generational... Yeah, and the thing is, I actually know what she was trying to say, which is that, like, we should be living in a society that's beyond all this, but I think that's overly simplistic. Yeah. When you're talking about American racial politics, never give an interview in French, because it's <laughs> always going to come off a little bit tone deaf, I yeah. think. Yeah. But that's just the attitude of a person of her generation, age, and standpoint. Last thing, the last shot, the people are yeah, really talking I, about that last shot. I've been thinking about that last shot as well. They're dancing at their wedding song and at the end of the song they all kind of like put their arms up and the music, the music swells. swells and Kate and Jeffrey put their arm up and in the very last second Kate quickly pulls her arm from him you know just holds it to her chest and the film ends yeah there's a there's a kind of world of pain and unanswered questions in that gesture. I just wish the whole movie had had a little bit more of the intensity if, if it hadn't sort of stretched out yeah, yeah. in my opinion. Alright okay, next one Kate Blanchard Brian Go for it. Can we engage in some um, speculative fiction? If Kate Blanchett had not ever appeared in Blue Jasmine, would she be winning the Academy Award for Carol? No. Why? Oscars don't really like gay people. They... Tell that to Tom Hanks. Yeah, but Tom Hanks died. Tom Hanks was a True. tragic character. Okay, okay, here we okay. go. Carol Aird is not a tragic character. She overcomes various things, and her and Rooney Mara, we're led to believe, do things their own way. Had she been shot or died, <laughs> or if, if Harge had come, if Harge had strangled her, <laughs> you know, she might be getting that Oscar. So you're claiming that Carol would be a Best Picture nominee today if it had been Brokeback Mountain and ended in, in emotional pain and death. That's the way 
queer characters are treated in films and, and that's the way straight actors are rewarded. I loved her Carol. I did. Much more than I loved Rooney's Mara. <laughs> so was this different from Blue Jasmine? Was she giving the same mid-Atlantic posh woman that we've kind of seen Kate Blanchett do before? Well, Kate Blanchett does this kind of Americana style so well. <laughs> Um, and I think that, that um, in many ways, Carol Aird is just more of a Vaseline version of that. Really? Yeah, and to some extent. I think there's much more no, to Carol No, I know there is, that. but I want you to defend it instead of me. Here's the patented Brian defense of Carol. Whenever anyone says the film is cold or Kate Blanchett is overacting, she's a neurotic woman. She's a woman who actually is quite unstable. When we meet Carol Aird, we meet her through Therese's eyes. She's this icy, beautiful, rich woman coming in the department store. But when you watch the film a second time, you start to see that Carol is almost putting on a performance, the performance of a woman who's got it all together. When the film pivots and we start to go into Carol's subjectivity, we see a vulnerability, a skittishness, a nervousness. And then it's all kind of building up to the section of the film where she shows herself to be vulnerable around the potential loss of her child, around then coming to make a play for she and Therese to live their life together out in the open. You know, we're not ugly people. I need this in my life. And you just have to look at that scene where they meet in the hotel, the restaurant scene that gets done twice. And you see how in the one version of it, Carol seems so composed. And then when we're seeing it from the other way around, we've, we've gotten under the skin of this woman in such an interesting way. Yeah. And that's the beauty of Todd Haynes' direction. It is, and it's also no other actress living today, I think, could do that role as well. No one has that combination of emotionality and artificiality. So bravo, Kate another in your pantheon of wonderful performances. Now, let's talk about the two women who are sort of duking it out to be the starlet of the year. Brie Larson in Room and our beloved Sersha, Sersha Ronan, who we previously heard from. Well, I heard from you. You were in here in the podcast. Yeah, I so, was in here. Yeah. One of them is going to win. And as much as I really, really admire both these performances in two, again, are exceptionally well-made Irish films, I, I obviously have a preferential uh, uh, favoritism one of them. Let's talk about Brie Larson first. We both went to see Room with, I think, with a bit of a Still Alice in, in, in mind. Still Alice is a TV movie with a great leading actress performance. No disrespect, Julianne Moore, that's what it is. Yeah. Okay? Room has everything about it that could be a TV movie. It has gratuitous trauma mm -hmm. and it has uh, redemption. It's much more than that. It's a very interesting, skillfully filmed picture about trauma, concentrated trauma, mm. in the sense that we are constantly concentrating on these people and only those people. Jacob Tremblay, who's terrific. Talk about someone who really got yeah. overlooked this the year. The only actor that I really would be rooting for. For lead. Yeah, for lead. This is why I think the film is so insightful, is because we're watching this film from his eyes. Yeah. Okay? We, we look at his mother in many ways through his eyes. The premise of the movie is that this woman has been kept uh, prisoner for seven years in a room and has been raped and assaulted and, and kept prisoner by some horrible, horrible bastard. And and she's she's kidnapped when she's about what age? Like 19 or something. I think he's even, even younger. younger like 17. 16, yeah. Yeah. And she has a child. Born in the, from the rape yeah. of, of her captor. Yeah, called yeah. Uh, Jack. Jack. And actually her character's name is Joy. Joy, yeah. And they live in Room, which is a tiny little box a shed. A shed, which is the only world that Jack has ever experienced. When we meet them, she's created, actually, these elaborate kind of explanations for what room is, who the captor is, old Nick. 
And it's in order to protect her son from the harsh realities of the world that he's been born into and that she's trapped in that he can't understand. You see these these two people very close, very close quarters. And I think Brie Larson is amazing working with this young actor, but also amazing at kind of keeping up the optimism and the hope of this yeah. character while allowing us to see the pain. Yeah. Um. You know, it reminded me a lot of The Babadook. Yeah. Is that a weird comparison to me? No. It's a very claustrophobic film. Well, and also that kind of intense bond between mother and child. And, and, the, and the adult having to be the responsible one keeping it together. But, but also sort of just on the border of not keeping it together. Yeah. There are moments where she really almost loses it, you know? Yeah. What about the second half of the movie? Because actually... Well, that's where I, I really think that she shines. Mm. Through her dullness, if you know what I mean. They go back to her family home. And the most revealing part, I think, is that this is a world that she is familiar with and she's adjusting to being a person again. But she can't just be. Right. And she's in this house, which is as much of a prison in some ways as room because she doesn't know how to be a person. And and th- those years were stolen from her. Yeah. So she goes Stol- back to her, and she's her childhood bedroom, yeah. yeah, which is still decorated like she's a teenager. And she's had to almost suppress that anger for the benefit of her son all that time. And we watch her unravel. And she has the maturity of a teenager that has had to strive through this adversity. She's never really allowed to become a woman. You know that part where she's looking through her um, photo album? Yeah. And she points to those two girls who she ran track with. And she says to the kid, do you know anything about these girls? And he says, like, no. She's like, well, because nothing bad ever happened to them. Yeah. And I felt it. it was the petulance and anger of a teenager who has not got their way. Yeah. But it's so much deeper than that. Because she is both mature and immature, damaged and strong. And she plays those dichotomies beautifully. Because she goes from being this this sole provider, this like totem of strength and control and and like crumbling but, but like fortified sanity to this person who has relieved herself of this tension and, and but doesn't know how to doesn't know how to be and actually you know now that I talk about it I'm realizing how brilliant it is it, it's very well yeah. done I think the, the whole thing it's, yeah. it's the direction and the writing by yeah. Emma Donahue yeah. the boy Joan Allen the actor who plays Joan Allen's new husband yeah. across the board everybody is is great Brie Larson is a very deserving yeah. winner if she ends up winning yeah. and she's been around for decades like she's been on TV she was yeah. a, she had she was a singer for a while yeah. I always get quite irritated when some young upstart comes in and like just takes the... uh, Jennifer Lawrence. (laughs) Takes the award, okay? So I do not resent this. You know what my reservation is? Two words. Hilary Swank. Mm. The curse of the young Oscar. Yeah. Okay? Hilary Swank, in in kind of an an anomalous fashion, has two Best Actress Oscars. But you know what pains me about Hilary Swank is that she never got the breaks that she deserved for an actress of her caliber. Please, please, Sean, I'm like crossing my fingers and like crossing myself. Take the curse of Hilary Swank away from Brie Larson. She does not deserve it. Okay, no, I know she doesn't deserve it, Brian. You're worried. No one deserves it. (laughs) No one. Okay. Did, did Mira Sorvino deserve it? No, but she also didn't win lead. No, but, but still, it's okay. it's that curse of the early Oscar. Okay. I Brie, you're probably going to win. I I just wish you the best of luck. With everything Live else long you do. and prosper. Live long Brie. and prosper, Brie. But you know what though, the actress who I think you know easily is as deserving. Yeah. The great Sir Ronan does not have that same sword dangling over her. Now, why is that? Because she's an actress who's like 21, but she has a soulfulness about I her. I agree. And a, and a quiet reservedness in her acting. Can you tell we like this film? Can you yeah. tell that two expatriate boys, with both Irish with Irish ancestry, ancestry yeah. 
cried, wept. I cried, and I not even uh, moments. I cried the first five. Minutes. Our hearts fluttered for Emery Cohen. Yeah. we just. I, <laughs> this, loved, I loved it. If you haven't seen Brooklyn, you go and see Brooklyn. It is. It is perhaps not the most quote unquote sophisticated of the movies nominated this year, but it is the one that will tug at you. Yeah. And, and you won't feel bad or manipulated by it because it's beautifully crafted. It That's is an sincere. old, it's an old-fashioned movie, and I think Saoirse Ronan is sorry, sorry, Saoirse, Saoirse Ronan is an old-school movie yeah. star, and she she's an old-school movie star with a real North Dublin twang to her. Yes, yes, who's yeah. modulated it for a lovely lilt as the character from Enniscorthy. Enniscorthy is in County Wexford. Yeah, so she's adjusted her harsher Dublin accent to play Eilish, the young woman who comes from Ireland to yeah. Brooklyn in the 1950s. There's a moment early on in the film, before she leaves Ireland, where she and her friend go to one last dance in the Irish village. She knows she's going to be traveling to New York. And there is a long, lingering close-up just on Saoirse's face. I heard the um, author of the original book, Colm Tobin. Sean helps me with these Irish pronunciations. He was on Radio 4, and they were talking to him like, how did you feel about the differences between the book and the movie? And he said, well, you know what? I could write 30 pages of narration of this character's inner thoughts, and it can be conveyed by one close-up of this actress. You look into those eyes of someone so young, and she feels like a 40, 50-year-old woman who understands the world. You see what she sees. I don't know. I'm getting, I'm getting emotional thinking about She just film. has presence, you know? <laughs> it's a quiet performance because... She loves this young man, Tony, who she who she meets in Brooklyn, but she also longs for her life back home. Circumstances, the death of her sister, mean that she has to return home to Ireland after she's blossomed and grown into, a, into an Americanized woman. And now she's out of place in the land she came from, and she starts to feel a longing for the lovely Donald Gleason, who's equally appealing in lots of different ways. And we just sit there thinking, what would we do? She is this kind of amazing surrogate for the audience for anyone who's ever been away from home yeah and we feel that emotion with her and, but you know what it is it's it's i i'm biased as well from an irish perspective where you're there thinking god i can't wait to get out of here and then you do yeah and you grow mature and then you go back and you're like i really like it here yeah and there is a part of you that feels torn between two places well, very different circumstances yes i know we're in london now i'm getting a ryanair flight tomorrow for 20 pounds it's no big deal yeah but you still feel the pain of the emigrant. You well, know? nostalgia yeah. means the pain yeah. for home. Yeah. The wound, the longing yeah. for home. Oh, I didn't know that. Nostalgia, oh. yes, for our Greek listeners. Yes. Um, I agree with you. Saoirse may not win this year. It's her second nomination. I just hope that they keep writing yeah. movies for her to do. Saoirse, if you're listening... Well, she was on earlier. Yeah, so, and I know she... you didn't hear her, but she, she was here. Yeah, but she's not us. listening now. This is okay. recorded. Okay. <laughs> Saoirse, if you're listening... I don't think you should be too upset if you don't win because you'll have many other opportunities in the future. All right, we are nearly done with the podcast. Can we just give some shout outs to some of the other performances this year that weren't nominated that we thought deserved some attention? Let's just say some names, will we? Yeah. Can I say Maloya Snake to you? Oh, what does that mean? Oh my God. What does that mean to you, Sean? Another female driven film. I mean, a female saturated yeah. film, Clouds of Sils Maria. We came out of that film, I mean, in a flurry going, I don't know who I related to in that film. Sean couldn't decide. Yeah. Was I Valentine or was I Maria Andrews? I still don't 
don't know. We're talking about obviously the often extraordinary Juliette Binoche. <laughs> I'm so surprised. And so, so amazed. And so amazed. <laughs> and the revelatory Kristen Stewart, yeah. following up on Still Alice by really holding the screen with with a great older actress Natural, being amazing. She really deserved a nomination this she year. She did, and but you know what? I'd say fuck the Oscars. You've got to say Zara, uh, and amen. that's enough. Amen. Yeah. I would also just give a shout out to Maya Taylor, who was um, one of the women in Tangerine. If you haven't seen Tangerine, it's being sold as a kind of crazy comedy about trans um, prostitutes. It's a darker and more moving film. Yeah, than I and, think. and Maya Taylor was the real standout. Maya Taylor was the heart of that film. Um, when we got to see her at the yeah. um, at the BFI London Film Festival, and, yeah, and, and I hope speak. that there's enough opportunities for her and her co-host. Co-host, who was her co-star's name? Uh, Kiki Rodriguez. Yeah, I really hope that they both have plenty of opportunities to uh, to get acting roles. There's probably lots of other amazing female um, movies from this year that we still have to see. But has it been the year of the woman at the Oscars this year, Sean? It's. A year of the woman. Yeah. I don't want to say, I don't want to put a definite article for any of these things. Well, you know, at least the Academy learned because in 1992, they declared in advance that 1992 would be the year of the woman. Well, and one. The, the, the movies that were nominated included Unforgiven. Which won everything. A Few Good Men. The Crying Game. The Crying Game. And... Which is about women, but... The the real female-centered role of that, of, of that year and the, one of the most deserving best actress wins of all time. Emma Thompson's performance as Margaret Schlegel in Howard's End. So Emma dedicated her award to true screen heroines. May we see more of them. And I think that you and I can both second that sentiment. Yeah. All right. And lastly, uh, Meryl Streep, Ricky and the Flash. We didn't see that. We didn't see Ricky and the Flash. (laughs) Don't lie. All right. All right. right. Okay, thank you for listening. Sean. I have to go, Brian. Uh, And I will see you or hear you all uh, in two weeks' time. Bye. Oh, Sean. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Sean is being really flaky today. I don't know why. Uh, hello? Am I late? Late? Uh, who is this? Because I don't want to be late like that awful fade on away. Oh my goodness. Is this, uh, three-time Academy Award winning actress Betty Davis? Yes, it's three. It should be five. But yes, it is Betty Davis. I am calling you from heaven. From heaven? From heaven. Faye Bainter is here. Irene Dunn is here. Jack Warner is not. And uh, just out of curiosity, Miss Davis, what about your rival and sometime co-star Joan Crawford? Miss Crawford sells Pepsi in hell. We've never had anyone call in from such a long way away. Do you still keep up with the latest trends and controversies in Hollywood? Yes, I have been following the recent Mara Vikander debacle. It reminds me of my own situation with Anne Baxter. You're talking about category fraud. Yes. If Miss Baxter would have accepted her role as a supporting actress in All About Eve, then I would have won. Instead of the dreadful Judy Holiday. Well, of course, uh, Rooney Mara is doing a romantic lead opposite another woman. 
that's not something that ever would have happened in Hollywood in your day. Maybe not explicitly, but I have, in fact, played a lesbian in the film. The con is green. My goodness, really? Yes, you must go back and watch it again, young man. I'm, I'm definitely going to do that. But Miss Davis, I'm afraid we really have to wrap up. This podcast has been very long, but there's a bit of business that we've got to do. Will you stay with me for that? Yes, of course. Live from New York, it's uh, no, 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 no. Sorry, that's something else, Miss Davis. This is a podcast. I don't know what you're saying to me. Well, anyway, uh, ladies and gentlemen who are listening at home, uh, it's interesting that she mentioned New York. For any of our listeners in New York, you might be interested to find out about You Like Me, which is the annual show created by Broad Appeal superfan Michael Schulman, who writes for The New Yorker. It's a, an evening of classic awards acceptance speeches from the Oscars, the Tonys, Golden Globes, performed by hilarious people. What do you think of that, Miss Davis? That sounds like a dreadful evening. I can assure you it's a lot of fun. There may still be tickets available. It's on the 21st of February at Joe's Pub in the Public Theater. Check it out. You can follow them on Twitter at Awards Speeches. You can also follow us on Twitter at Broad Appeal Pod or on our website, www.broadappealpod.com, where you can find all our back episodes, as well as blogs and lots of other information. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, at, where we hope you'll leave us a rating and a review. If you've never heard our podcast before this episode, we usually look at female-driven films from the 1990s, and our next episode in two weeks' time is looking at To Die For with Nicole Kidman. We haven't done any of your films, Miss Davis. Yes, I was dead in the 1990s. <laughs> it was a shame you never got to do that sequel to The Whales of August. Yes, The Revenge of the Whales of August. We'll have to bring you on to talk about that one another time. Yes, you will. On behalf of myself, Ed Shaw, and great Betty Davis, we'll see you all in two weeks. Enjoy the Oscars. Goodbye. Oscar, trucking around with Oscar, go